On January 31st, UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez spoke at the United Nations in New York. I underscored the importance of keeping UNRWA's vital work going to meet the dire needs of civilians in Gaza and to ensure its continuity of services to Palestine refugees in the occupied West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon and Syria. The Secretary General was making a desperate plea to donor nations. UNRWA is the backbone of all humanitarian response in Gaza. I appeal to all member states to guarantee the continuity of UNRWA's life-saving work. Five days earlier, the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, or UNRWA, a vital lifeline for millions of highly vulnerable people, was informed that hundreds of millions of dollars of aid would be withheld. The news was devastating. It's news that would be devastating on a normal day, but normal is a word that has not been heard in Gaza for months. The need for UNRWA is paramount, and those working in the aid community are sounding the alarm that without funding, an effective death sentence is being passed on tens of thousands of civilians, likely more. This week, we look at why donor nations have suspended funding, the immediate need for an intense humanitarian effort in Gaza, and what the future holds for some of the planet's most desperate people. My name is Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. First, an update from the past week in Gaza. The war in Gaza passed the four-month mark this week. It also passed the grim milestone of 100,000 people killed, injured or missing. Reports began to emerge over the weekend of February 3rd that Hamas was studying the details of a proposed ceasefire. The ceasefire proposal followed talks in Paris involving intelligence chiefs from Israel, the United States and Egypt and the Prime Minister of Qatar. A Hamas counter-proposal, which was given to Egyptian and Qatari mediators, offered a ceasefire consisting of three 45-day phases, which would see the release of Israeli captives in return for the release of 1,500 Palestinian prisoners. Speaking on the counter-proposal, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken said this. We had uh, an opportunity today to discuss with the Israeli government the response that Hamas sent last night to the proposal that the United States, Qatar, and Egypt uh, had put together uh, to bring the remaining hostages home and extend the humanitarian pause. Uh, What I can tell you about these discussions is that while there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, uh, we do think it creates space for agreement to be reached. And we will work at that relentlessly until we get there. That space was later closed when Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced that he was rejecting the proposal. In a speech, he said that, quote, victory is within reach. It's not a matter of years or decades. It's a matter of months, end quote. Adding that, quote, only a total victory will allow us to restore security in Israel, both in the north and in the south, end quote. 
Throughout the week, Israeli warplanes have pounded the southern city of Rafa, close to the border with Egypt. Fears have steadily risen that preparations for a ground offensive of the city are in motion. Over the months, the city has become the last place that residents can flee to escape violence in the north. There are over one million displaced in Rafa. The possibility of an assault on Rafa prompted UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez to warn that such a move such would, quote, would exponentially increase what is already a humanitarian nightmare with untold regional consequences. And repeated calls for a ceasefire and the return of hostages. Prospects for a Rafa assault also alarmed Israel's biggest supporter, the US, who in a break from their recent track record expressed concern about Israeli military actions. US National Security spokesperson John Kirby spoke with reporters on February 8th. I think you all know more than a million Palestinians are are uh, sheltering in and around Rafah. Uh, that's where they were told to go. Uh, there's a lot of displaced people there, and the Israeli military has a special obligation as they conduct operations there or anywhere else to make sure that they're factoring in protection for uh, for innocent civilian life, particularly you know civilians that were were pushed into southern Gaza by operations further north, Khan Yunus and and North Gaza. Uh, I could tell you that uh, absent any uh, full consideration. Uh, of protecting civilians at that scale in Gaza. Um, military operations right now would be a disaster for those people, and it's not something that we would support. This is Sami Kuta, a resident of Gaza. Racked with anguish, he says our children are dying from hunger. He asks, what should we eat? Should we eat grass? Also asking... Where should we go? With the start of the conflict in Gaza, the humanitarian situation became a catastrophe. The war has now continued for over four months and the situation has deteriorated at a rapid pace. For every day the war continues and for every additional bomb dropped, the scale of suffering in Gaza becomes ever greater. But the humanitarian crisis in Gaza isn't new. It was a serious problem long before the war started. Right now, when we're talking about four months exactly after October 7th, we are fighting so hard to get back to the baseline healthcare system that existed on October 6th. And prior to that, we were arguing about how much that healthcare system was uh, insufficient and inadequate. Um, so that kind of tells you how far we've fallen here. This is Dr. Yara Asi. Dr. Asi is an assistant professor of global health management and informatics at the University of Central Florida and the author of the recently released book, How War Kills, The Overlooked Threats to Our Health. In 2012, actually, the United Nations issued a report that with current trend lines, Gaza would be unlivable by 2020. This was kind of seen as a alarm bell report. The situation obviously continued and, and here we are, 2024. Um, kind of looking at what's been happening. So significantly high poverty rate in the Gaza Strip, very high unemployment, around 50%. It's even higher among young adults. In fact, the more educated you are, the higher the unemployment rate. And when you have low household income, 
Typically, that leads to issues like food and water insecurity. And we definitely saw that in the Gaza Strip, high food insecurity. And for many people who were food insecure or verging on food insecurity, they were basically entirely dependent on humanitarian agencies and aid to give them food. The nature of the Israeli blockade also meant that Gaza suffered from an intense shortage of medical supplies and equipment. These shortages extended from the most basic supplies like medical gauze and IV bags to more specialized equipment and pharmaceuticals needed to treat illnesses such as cancer. Um, we had higher rates than expected of children's stunted growth and other issues. So we were calling this a humanitarian disaster long before October 7th. Um, and so now it has absolutely gone to unprecedented levels. There was a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Now it's a disaster, a catastrophe, a cataclysm, probably beyond what words can describe. Yara identifies three main threats to the health and well-being of civilians in Gaza. So number one at this moment remains the threat and the reality of violence. And so much of the death toll at the time that we're speaking, about 30,000 people, has come from airstrikes, from snipers, from direct violence. The problem is because of the collapse of the healthcare system, people who have otherwise treatable wounds or injuries are dying from their injuries because there isn't uh, antibiotics, there isn't proper surgical uh, tools or personnel. And so it's not just the immediate threat of the direct violence, but we're seeing, you know, this high rate of amputations. We're seeing many people dying on the floors of hospitals. And so the threat of violence continues and people who survived the initial attack are dying afterwards simply because they don't have the resources they need. So so obviously violence is the is the biggest bucket right now. Violence is the most obvious threat. War zones are inherently dangerous and particularly dangerous when people, as is happening today in Gaza, cannot escape to safety. The second, I would say, is this threat of famine and starvation that we're seeing across the Gaza Strip and especially in the north. The major kind of famine malnutrition watchdog of the world, the, the IPC, has issued a significant warning about a catastrophic food insecurity across the Gaza Strip. And aside from the understandable health ailments that come from malnutrition and lack of ability to eat not just su sufficient calories, but nutritious and nourishing food. We recognize that when people are starving and hungry, their bodies are more susceptible to other ailments. The ICP is the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification. It's a multi-partner initiative for improving food security, nutrition analysis and decision making. In their recent report, they determined that the entire population of Gaza, all 2.2 million people, are now classified in IPC phase 3 or above. This is the highest share of people facing high levels of acute food insecurity that the IPC initiative have ever classified for any given area or country. To be classified as phase 3, is to be deemed a crisis or for a household to have high or above usual acute malnutrition. Of the population of Gaza, 50% are classified as phase four. This is an emergency. 
Households have large food consumption gaps, which are reflected in very high acute malnutrition and excess mortality. At least one in four households are in phase five, catastrophe. Households have an extreme lack of food and or other basic needs, even after full employment of coping strategies. Starvation, death, destitution, and extremely critical acute malnutrition levels are evident. And this is when the third bucket comes in, which is the threat of infectious disease. Almost immediately, public health agencies and scholars were warning about deterioration causing this massive threat of infectious disease. We see this in displaced and conflict-affected populations throughout history. This is not news. So basically, one of the top health concerns you initially worry about in any war zone is infectious disease. And unsurprisingly, we have seen this completely um, overwhelm the people of Gaza. I'm sure we remember the global COVID-19 pandemic and the importance that was placed on tracking infections and the spread of disease, a task that is almost impossible to do in a war zone. Because of the chaos and fragmentation of the population, a lot of the numbers we have are just estimates or guesses, uh, because even in, in terms of infectious disease, these are people that had to have been at a shelter or a hospital or somewhere and were counted somehow. We can only assume how many people are suffering that are not being counted in, in our in our imperfect measures. Um, but the World Health Organization has reported, and this was a few weeks ago, so a bit outdated, but I, I couldn't find more recent numbers, at least 100,000 cases of diarrheal diseases. In a, in a functional health system, this would be a short hospital stay um, and ensuring that someone stays hydrated. We can't even provide that basic level of care for people in Gaza. And so this will be incredibly dangerous for elderly, people with disabilities, people that are malnourished, and children, regardless of their health status, and especially newborn babies. And diarrheal diseases aren't the only infection spreading in Gaza. We're seeing basically everyone complaining of some form of upper respiratory infection. Everyone has sore throats, stuffy noses. We've seen some reporting of, of influenza and COVID-19, um, but undoubtedly there is a significant amount of this that we're just unable to capture. Influenza typically is non-lethal, is treatable, is preventable. In this circumstance, especially when you have this level of crowding, it can be extremely dangerous. We're also concerned because children are not getting their, their regular vaccinations. Um, the, you know, ch Any child who has been born in the past six months probably has not received a single vaccine. The images and testimonies that have escaped the besieged enclave over the past four months have been shocking. It's difficult to say what's the most shocking aspect of this conflict, but one recurring theme which has horrified many people deeply are the repeated attacks on hospitals and healthcare facilities. So what is the state of healthcare in Gaza? What's still standing? What we're hearing is that an estimated 30 to 35 percent of health facilities in Gaza remain at least partly functional. Now, that does not mean that they're able to provide the full gamut of services. That does not mean that they are fully staffed. It just means that they are partly functional. They're still able to do something. And much of that is concentrated in the central and south parts of Gaza. 
to repeat, that is just partly functional. Today they are partly functional. Tomorrow they may not be functional at all. We heard in 2023, before the new year, from health professionals in Gaza that the health system had collapsed. They're unable to do, at this point, anything besides, you know, kind of basic triage. They cannot even allow people who receive surgeries to stay in their surgical beds because they need the beds for new patients. A lot of the amputations that we're seeing doctors are indicating would be completely preventable if they had antibiotics and proper tools and the patients could get to them in time. Um, we're hearing reports of pregnant women giving birth in overcrowded shelters, uh, receiving cesarean sections with no anesthesia, and again, ha having to leave, if they're able to get to a health facility, having to leave immediately. The hospitals are under additional strain because they're now serving as dual-use buildings. And then, of course, there's this reality that many health facilities in Gaza are being used as shelters by thousands and tens of thousands of people who feel that if nowhere is safe, perhaps the hospital is the safest place I could be. And so the level of crowding, I mean, they're, they're essentially refugee camps at this point alongside being hospitals. Dr. Mahmoud Raja Abu Shamala is one of these doctors. He works in the emergency department at the NASA medical complex in Khan Yunis. In the emergency room, there are no more than five or six doctors. He explained how each one of them was handling 10 cases at a time. He explained how, once they've done with one case, the people waiting have already died. He explained how he found his best friend lying on the floor in front of a resuscitation unit, unable to find a bed. He told reporters how he gave his friend CPR, but his friend died. The loss of hospital buildings and clinics is cripplingly detrimental to the people of Gaza, not to mention a war crime. But equally calamitous is the loss of healthcare workers, a loss that will be felt for years, perhaps decades to come. They're worried for their own lives and the lives of their families. We've heard of at least 400 health workers in Gaza that have been killed, and many of whom were heads of departments, had very specialized treatments, are irreplaceable. You know, this is a generational loss for Gaza's health system. And so on every level, by any measure, we are seeing a collapse. And I, I feel like even that word is insufficient because, again, we were using that word two months ago. So I don't know what we call it two months after it's collapsed. By this point, it should be clear that there is a desperate need for supplies in Gaza. What do they need? In short, everything. What's available is quickly running out, and the rest they don't have. More specifically... So number one would be fuel. We need fuel to not just power electricity and telecommunications, but also fuel for well pumps, fuel for other vital infrastructure for the people that are able to remain. Um, we need, obviously, significant increase in food. We cannot emphasize this enough. Famine is not by accident. Famine is an entirely human-made phenomenon. And so when we have people starving, and we've seen plenty of images of 
hundreds, if not thousands of trucks waiting in Egypt, trying to come in, many of them who have food. They're sitting there for days and weeks. A lot of the food goes bad. This is just a, a crisis situation. And then we need increase in medical supplies. Some aid is getting in, but only some, and only sometimes. When it does, it's not enough. If you look at it in the in the long term, it's it's quite variable. There's been days when it's been single or double digits. I think what we're seeing by now is the average when trucks are allowed to come in is about 100 per day. Prior to the start of the war, Gaza would see an average of 500 trucks a day delivering supplies. And so um, the shortfall is really impossible to measure. It is a huge shortfall of aid. And again, much of it is human made. Israel is restricting the amount of trucks that are allowed to come in. They're restricting where aid is able to be distributed. They're trying to prevent aid from reaching the north, which where many got people in Gaza remain. Responsibility for the lack of aid deliveries falls on the shoulders of the Israeli government. All but one of Gaza's border crossings are with Israel. Aid agencies and foreign governments have begged the Israeli government to open up all the crossings and allow for the delivery of life-saving aid. So far, they have not consented. It's not only the government who are stopping aid deliveries. Recently, Israeli citizens have also decided to erect tents in front of the crossings to block the path of aid trucks. Dabi Sharon is one such protester. We, we're here to do something about it because everyone that, that comes here knows people that have been kidnapped. We all know people that have been kidnapped. They're on television every day. We all know soldiers that are fighting inside. And we just think this has to, this has to stop. We're actually helping the Hamas. We're helping the Hamas to get stronger. That's what we're doing here. We're trying to stop that uh, ridiculous situation that we're helping the Hamas. Whether it be the Israeli government or the Israeli citizens, both are impediments to aid delivery. But Gaza and all Palestinian people were recently dealt a heavy blow when funding for the main supplier of aid was suspended. Nabil Abiruddineh, a spokesperson for the Palestinian Prime Minister Mahmoud Abbas, addressed the suspension with reporters. This step simultaneously taken during the war in Gaza sends a wrong message. This, this is, there is a war against the Palestinian people. This decision is incorrect and should be stopped immediately. We urge all these, all these countries to repay the UNRWA because it's a humanitarian issue. It, it has been taken in a wrong time and we hope that they will come back soon to understand that the need of the, the people in Gaza and everywhere is a necessity for continuing living on this earth. You may not have heard of UNRWA. In brief, it's a UN refugee agency. You may have heard of the UNHCR. That's also a UN refugee agency. They're not the same. UNRWA was established in 1949, following the establishment of the State of Israel and the Palestinian Nakba, and only deals with Palestinian refugees. But not just in Palestine. Also Palestinian refugees in Jordan, Syria and Lebanon. Across the countries in which it operates, it employs around 30,000 people. The UNHCR is separate and deals with all other refugees around the world. UNRWA has found itself in a new storm of 
outrage and condemnation. This is Chris Doyle. Chris is the director of the Council for Arab-British Understanding. Israel has alleged that a number of UNRWA staff participated in the 7th of October atrocities. Now, the exact details are actually very unclear. Indeed, the very numbers of those involved is also not clear at all. We were led to believe it is 12. We've now seen figures as low as six. The saga started on January 26th and stemmed from an Israeli dossier that was passed to UNRWA and in turn passed on to the US authorities. The accusations that were made in the dossier were serious and the UN Relief Agency responded at speed. It immediately dismissed those staff, so there was no proper process there. It dismissed them, and the UN has announced an investigation carried out by a separate investigating body, and separate to that, led by a former French foreign affairs minister, an independent review of UNRWA activities. The allegations against UNRWA members of staff are, of course, extremely serious, very grave. They've treated them as such that they could have participated in those attacks. On the evening of January 26th, the same day as the accusations were made, spokesperson for the Secretary General of the United Nations made a statement. The Secretary General has been briefed uh, by the Commissioner General of UNRWA, Philippe uh, Lazzarini, regarding extremely serious allegations which implicate several UNRWA staff members in the terror attacks of October 7th in Israel. The Secretary General is horrified by this news and asked Mr. Lazzarini to investigate this matter swiftly and to ensure that any UNRWA employee shown to have participated or abetted in what transpired on October 7th or in any other criminal activity be terminated immediately and referred for potential criminal prosecution. Upon receipt of the dossier, the U.S. announced that it was suspending vital and life-saving funding for UNRWA. Numerous other countries in the American orbit followed their lead. UNRWA is not funded from the United Nations Central Fund. It's voluntary donations from states. And it started with the United States, who said, based on these allegations, we are suspending funding. Other states followed, including the United Kingdom. All the leading donor nations, including Japan, one or two did hold out, notable exceptions like Belgium, Spain, France. But I think the last figure I saw was 16. That may well have gone up. It is actually the potential withdrawal of $440 million worth of funding, according to UNRWA. We've spoken a lot today about the desperate situation in Gaza, so you can probably imagine what it means to lose $440 million. And the donations that did pull out, pulled out with frightening speed. The US move had a chilling effect. It delegitimized UNRWA. And I think a lot of those other, other donor states believe because the United States moves so fast and so boldly that there must be something really serious at the heart of this and that therefore if they didn't take action that they could be deemed to be somehow complicit and they must review the situation. But then we heard this comment from the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and I quote, we haven't had the ability to investigate. We haven't had the ability to investigate them ourselves, but they are highly, highly credible. At the same time, and as you indicated, 
UNRWA has played and continues to play uh, an absolutely indispensable role uh, in. Now, that's an extraordinary comment that the American leading chief diplomat is basically saying that he is taking at face value as true the Israeli allegations, but the US hasn't investigated them. And it would appear that Israel has not, according to UNRWA, shared the evidence with UNRWA or the United Nations in any other body. And so we're not actually sure of the substance to these allegations at all. Obviously, they're serious. But, you know, in order for this to, to, to go forward, Israel must provide what evidence it has, if it has any. Which gets to the heart of the controversy. So far, there has been no substantial evidence provided. Not to the public, not to the donor nations, and seemingly not to UNRWA. Now, Israel then says, well, this is because we cannot reveal our intelligence sources. We can't divulge how we got this information. Well, that creates an enormous problem because that means we're relying on the word of a government, of a state, who has demonstrated for many years a hostility towards this UN agency, one that wishes to close it down. As one leading Israeli politician said to me, we like what UNRWA does, providing healthcare, primary healthcare, primary education, food relief, social services. That's great, but we don't like the mandate. We don't like the fact that this is an agency there to help Palestinian refugees. The belief that the continuation of existence of this agency perpetuates the issue of Palestinian refugees. So they would like to see UNRWA disbanded. When you lay this out, you have a country, Israel, who have a long-held ambition to see UNRWA's mission ended, make accusations with little solid evidence presented to back them up, which resulted in donor countries suspending funding and potentially condemning hundreds of thousands of people. Since the allegations were first made, they have come under a greater level of scrutiny, particularly from the media, who have found the claims shaky. That doesn't mean that they're all false or all true. It does mean that there is a question of doubt, which warrants investigation and not an instant and highly damaging response. So why did these donations act so quickly? There's two views. One would say that because the US did this and did it so stridently and quickly, it created an impression that there must be something really serious in the evidence and the US must have seen it. And then ever, everybody else felt scared that they, if they didn't follow suit, created that chilling effect. Or quite possibly it was that actually there was some coordination amongst donor states. I think they didn't do it all on the same day. They didn't make joint announcements though. So I'd probably veer more to the first scenario that it was the US action that pushed these states to do this. When the global community is faced with a calamity like what we're witnessing in Gaza, surely there is a legal responsibility for powerful and wealthy nations like the US and like Germany and such to provide funding for aid. There's no legal obligation on any of these states to donate to UNRWA. There's obviously a strong moral obligation 
on quite a few states to donate, given the responsibility for the Palestinian refugees, and indeed Britain would probably be top of that list, given that we were the mandatory power, that we did leave Palestine in 1948 in such turmoil, in such an appalling way to withdraw as Jews and Palestinian Arabs were literally fighting each other at the time. So we do have a, a, a responsibility there, but it, it's not necessarily a legal one. This is obviously less than ideal, but someone has to be responsible. Let's be absolutely clear here that actually Israel is the occupying power in Gaza. Some people used to debate that prior to the 7th of October, but given the ground invasion, it's degree of effective control, which is the measure of whether you are an occupying power or not, is even greater. There can be no doubt it's the occupying power. And that's the position of all the leading states, it's the position of the international community, it's the position of the British government, that Israel has been in continuous occupation of Gaza since 1967. As an occupying power, Israel has the legal duty to provide for the Palestinian population of Gaza in terms of services. So actually, whilst there isn't a legal obligation to fund UNRWA, there is a legal obligation to insist that Israel adhere to its obligations. And of course, we're not doing that. The lack of insistence by Western nations that Israel abides by its legal obligations has been another common theme throughout this conflict. Most recently, with the ICJ's provisional measures, they were brushed aside by a number of states. UNRWA is today, and has been for many years, fighting on all sides. Against a lack of funding and persistent cuts, against a rising requirement for their services, and a supposed delivery partner who does not want them to exist. Because, as we mentioned earlier, Israel would rather... UNRWA does not exist. Its objections to UNRWA are, are, are far more about its mandate than how it provides services. And they want to get rid of and to take away this whole idea that there is such a thing as a Palestinian refugee. They would love the hosting countries to basically incorporate these refugees as part of their own population, so the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon become Lebanese citizens, and Syria, Jordan and the like. So it wants to not so much get rid of UNRWA, but to get rid of the whole status of being a Palestinian refugee. A fundamental right of a refugee anywhere in the world is the right to return. If you have been illegally forced from your home, then you have the right to return to your home. A refugee doesn't have to, but there is always the right to return. This is, of course, not what Israel wants. Israel believes that if it can eliminate UNRWA, then with it, it can also eliminate the notion of a Palestinian refugee and the right of Palestinians to return home. This desire to remove the status of refugees dovetails with the stated ambitions of a number of Israeli lawmakers. You know, there are still fears, and I think they're valid fears. I hope it doesn't come to pass that... Israel will attempt to push out of Gaza a large number of Palestinians that they will land up in Egypt, 
and that Israel will demand that it's the UNHCR that caters for them at that stage and, and not UNRWA. This would be obviously ethnic cleansing and totally unconscionable, but it is something that particularly the Israeli right has dreamed about for a long time as part of its solution to Gaza, to dump Gaza or Palestinians from Gaza onto Egypt. And it's noticeable, of course, you know, we've seen huge displacement in Gaza from the north of the Gaza Strip to the south, closer to the uh, border with Egypt, and many Palestinian fears that this is the end goal, at least of some of the Israeli cabinet. The recent allegations have been levelled at, at most, 12 UNRWA workers. 12 UNRWA workers. Out of a total of 30,000 employees in the aid agency. The response by donor nations has been to suspend funding for millions of people. Some of them are the most desperate and endangered people in the world. Not for the first time in this conflict, we're witnessing collective punishment. By now, maybe those donor states that suspended funding are having second thoughts. Maybe they too believe that they acted rashly. UNRWA have said that their money will run out by the end of February. After that, an unknown. There is no other option except UNRWA. There is no other aid agency that can handle a catastrophe of this size. In the coming days and weeks, the donor nations are going to have to ask the questions. Why are we doing this? And who is really being punished? This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. If you've enjoyed this, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region. <laughs> <laughs>